open in prayer. Lord, this morning, first, before we make some specific requests about how we spend these next few minutes, we want to pray for another church and uh, pastor and his wife and family uh, in that church. We'll pray for Johnny and Ruth Ann Hales, uh, pastor of Park Street Baptist Church here in Greenville. Lord, I want to pray for Johnny and Ruth Ann first for their worship. I pray that you would uh, guard Johnny from uh, just getting it done and just... Um, maybe trying to keep people happy, maybe trying to, um, to deacon and pastor at the same time. All the struggles that I expect most pastors have to deal with from week to week. Pray that you would guard him from wanting to tickle ears or wanting to entertain when he preaches or teaches, but that he, first of all, is fueled by worship and wonder in his study. That in this order, first of all, connects with a sweet ministry to Ruth Ann. And secondly, with a real sweet and aromatic ministry to his family. And then third, to the church that you have him pastoring. And Lord, we pray for this church also. Well, I want to pray for Ruth Ann as well, knowing the challenges that pastor's wives face. Um, from week to week, so much is expected of them and so little... Um, Feedback is given unless it's not um, good. Just pray for Ruth Ann that you would guard her from the lies of Satan, that you would guard her from wounds, but that she would be fueled too by worship and that she would have, um, she would be on the receiving end of a really sweet ministry from Johnny. And then, Lord, we pray for this church, for Park Street Baptist Church. We pray for true worship, that week in, week out, that they are dining and that that meal that they eat is overwhelming them with awe and wonder, and at the same time equipping them to be salty and bright and aromatic between Sundays so that you have a potent gospel invading Greenville wherever they work, wherever they live. I pray the same thing for us. Lord, in whatever way that we are to come alongside Park Street Baptist Church, I pray that we will be faithful in doing that, whether it's just lifting them up, up this morning or whether there's some other way we're supposed to serve alongside them. Pray that we are cheering for your name and your fame and your renown and your glory in and through the ministry of Park Street. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for the many people that are sick in our community right now and really our country overwhelmed with sickness and loss right now just through flu. Think about the number of folks that are part of Crosspoint or connected to Crosspoint that are sick with a row of kids that are sick or parents that are sick. And Lord, we pray that you'll bring healing in these next few weeks. Pray too for those that are dealing with more life-threatening sickness, like Lori McCullough's mother and their family dealing with and reckoning with loss. For Dawn Rodden and her family reckoning with severe sickness. Lord, others in our body that are, have family members that are close, that are hurting and in pain, we pray that you'll be glorified and somehow lifted up and enjoyed through that pain and through that sickness. Pray that in those moments that we will be like the wise man who pays attention to death and loss. And that in that heartache and in that struggle that we will know what we have all the more when in Christ. In some weird way, Lord, we need these reminders of how much we have in Christ, the hope that we have in Christ, the eternal hope, the eternal joy that we have in store. Let's pray that we'll be attentive to those things in the pain, in the suffering, in the loss. And all the while, we share the desire of our heart for healing and for wellness. Enjoying and celebrating that we will ultimately know that in the end. Lord, in these next few minutes, I want to pray specifically about how we spend them. Pray first and foremost that we are attentive beyond any of our abilities, that the Holy Spirit gives us an attentiveness that's something that we can all look back on at lunchtime and think, man, God, you did something great. Pray for a clarity that I know I don't have. 
thankful this morning for liberty from a concern over delivery and an excitement over content. Look forward to what you're going to say and do in these next few minutes. Pray that you will be made much of. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a passage of Scripture with you that will kind of be an introduction this morning. I shared it last week as well, and I may share it each week in this series just for sake of grounding, just so we know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Just before Christmas, during the month of Christmas, we went through a series of sermons that was part of Advent, where we were getting ready for Christ's return, enjoying Christ's first coming. But before we engaged that, we were in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I'll read these passages while you're turning to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and you'll understand why we're going there if you've forgotten from last week or you weren't here last week. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This book of Hebrews is written to a bunch of believers, a church, likely a Jewish Christian church, like a vintage version of a Messianic Jewish church, likely in Rome, who's on the bubble. This church has had a period of time where they've been faithful, where their parents and maybe their grandparents were faithful, and maybe even they were faithful, but now their faith is on the bubble because things are hard in Rome. You die in Rome if you love Jesus. You could become a human torch. So they're on the bubble. And this pastor is writing to his church. He's not there with them in the flesh. He's writing to his church, and he's telling them, man, in this hard time, in this hard struggle, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We finished up the year just before Advent considering what that actually means. And what we found in that study is what that means, what's being said there, is that we are God's dwelling place. We're not talking about this physical structure at 2401 Jack Finney. We're talking about this people. God dwells in a people. We are God's house. So now that we know that we are God's house, we can read these ancient stories with a new set of eyes. A set of eyes and a heart that's been conditioned realizing that when he's talking about tabernacle, which is the mobile version of his house in the beginning, and then when he's talking about temple, which is the fixed version of his house, when he's speaking of those things, when there's some sort of event related to those things, we can read those with a new set of eyes, realizing, realizing those are shadow of the substance that we are. Those are early pictures of what the church is to be, the tabernacle and the temple, the touch point, the contact point between God and his creation. The tabernacle, then the temple, now the church. Knowing that, it opens up our whole Bibles to us. Our whole Old Testament just comes alive. This passage in 2 Chronicles, let's put this picture up here. I want you to know where we are in space and time. This is going to be one of my famous crummy pictures. And I'm going to explain it to you. And if you're on the, the sides there, we'll figure out some way to maybe email this out to you because this is really remarkable, this picture. Those of you who can see it, let me just explain it briefly. Up top it says high water marks, and it could say high water marks of the story of redemption or the story of the Bible. High water marks. Last time we used a timeline. These are high water marks. It's, it's, it's sort of the same, it's the same point with a different instrument. High water marks, the very left side at a high water mark, and it looks like waves if you want to draw it. The very top point there at the very beginning is creation. The high water mark, that's an important event, right? If that didn't happen, we wouldn't be here, okay? The next high water mark that we couldn't pass up as a high water mark is the flood. It's really funny to me. I don't know why it's funny. 
but that's funny. And then it goes back down, and then Abraham's call to go to Canaan is a high watermark. It's the beginning of a people, the birth of a people through a call of Abraham. The next high watermark would be the exodus from Egypt. And there's periods of time between each of these marks, and they're different. And then the next high watermark would be conquest as they cross over into the promised land and they start to fit the battle of Jericho and kick behind and take names. And then the next high watermark is the building of the temple and the dedication of the temple. That's where we are right now and where we're going to be these next few weeks. The next high watermark after that is exile. The next high watermark after that that's not on the screen is the cross. And this is kind of cool. The next high watermark, that's not on the picture. The next high watermark after the cross, go back down. We're in the dip, CF right down here. The next high watermark is Christ's return. We're in the, way, we're in the bottom of the wave. The next event that's going to happen in this redemptive story is Christ's return. It's imminent. Big story behind us. We don't know how much time is in front of us, but we know the next event, the next high watermark, is Christ's return. It's a cool picture. I know it's a really crummy picture, but... If you get what's being said there, you see that what we're, what we're talking about right now is a high water mark in the story, the building of the temple and the dedication of the temple by Solomon. Let me give you a little bit of context. You can turn that off now. <clears throat> a little bit of context. Second Chronicles is where we are, chapter 6 this morning. Second Chronicles begins with Solomon's prayer in chapter 1. Solomon, you may be familiar with the prayer. He prays. He, God tells him, you can ask for anything, Solomon. And he asks for wisdom. Give me wisdom. God grants him wisdom. And because it's such a wise prayer, he not only gives him wisdom, but he gives him wealth. And then in chapter 2, Solomon does what wise people do. He starts the work of building God's house. David pined to build this house for a long time. David wanted to plant the ark in a physical static structure. In the dip before that, the ark was housed in a tent, whether it's the tabernacle or whether it's in Shiloh. It wasn't or in somebody's barn, Obed-Edom. It was not a good setup for something as special as the ark. And David wanted that thing to be in a physical structure, and God said, you know what? You're not going to do it. I appreciate your desire. You're not going to do it, but you have blood on your hands. Your son will do it. So that's what Solomon does. He sets about the work of building the temple, the physical, the static location of God's touch point with the earth. Chapter 2 of 2 Chronicles, I'm going to read just a few little excerpts here and there just to kind of continue to build the setting. Solomon sent word to Hiram, king of Tyre. And he says to Hiram, As you dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedar to build him, himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. I need your construction materials, and I need your construction wisdom and insight. Send me a man skilled to work in gold and silver and bronze and iron and in purple and crimson and blue fabrics, trained also in engraving, in engraving. Send me, really... A temple version of a guy we studied on Wednesday nights, a couple dudes, Bezalel and Oholiab, that helped build the, temp, the, the tabernacle. Send me somebody that can help us build this place. So Hiram sends Solomon a man named Huram Abi, not Haram Abi, or I can't remember the Hammer, Hammurabi's code. That's a different Hammurabi, that's a different guy if you've studied that guy, Hammurabi. This is Huram Abi. And Huram Abi's pretty amazing. He's trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, wood, and in purple, blue, and crimson fabrics, in fine linen, and he can do all sorts of engraving and execute any design that may be assigned him. I got tickled last night in bed. I was telling Christy, I said, I just hear this guy about, like, this guy Huram Abi, and I'm thinking, I'm convinced this guy would have owned Project Runway. <laughs> he would have had his own show on HGTV. This guy was skilled in some pretty amazing stuff. Purple, crimson, bronze, iron, stone. You think about that, it's pretty funny. You might get tickled about that too. So then Solomon goes about the work of building the temple. He's got Huramabi. He's got a crew of people that are going to build it for him. 
He lays out the plan based on God's design. He furnishes it in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we're almost to this high water mark, right in front of this high water mark where the ark is moved into this physical static structure, the temple. The ark is moved in with great fanfare. In chapter 5, verse 12, it says, The Levitical singers, Asaph, affectionately known in the McGraw household as as soon as possible. Anytime we read that name, we say as soon as possible. Asaph, Heman, Jedithan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen. I thought maybe Clint, Aaron, Mark, Weddy, Corey, Chad, Steph, Tiff, they're all there with them. Arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were blowing trumpets. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison and in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I wonder how many times they sang that, how many different ways. And the house and the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. When I was a kid, those of the older among us would remember these. These little public service videos. Dick Van Dyke is teaching you how to get out of a house that's on fire. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of the younger ones might, and you just some of you don't have a clue, but you still think it's weird and quirky. It is kind of funny. Dick Van Dyke would teach people to get down on their hands and knees and crawl out of a house that was on fire because that's where the air is. And I'm just envisioning the priests having to get on their hands and knees the way Dick Van Dyke taught them to get out of the temple because God has filled that temple now that the Ark of the Covenant's moved in. This is a big moment, but we're not quite to the biggest moment yet. Chapter 6 is where we pick up. <clears throat> Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. He's connecting back to Sinai. But I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel. And then in verse 12, he blesses Israel. And verse 12 is where he starts praying, making specific requests Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it, and then he knelt on his knees in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. When I first started studying this passage, I couldn't make out if he's actually standing on the altar or not. It turns out he's standing on a physical structure that he made to pray on, a platform. And Scott and I had the coolest text exchange. I said, no, you know, I actually had Scott helping me research that. Was he standing on the altar? That would be appropriate. And Scott, I actually sent him a text message as I did more research and found that, no, he wasn't standing on the altar. He's standing on this platform. And then Scott wrote back, I don't remember what it said verbatim. He said, well, he is standing sort of on an altar. He's not on the altar, but in fact, he's kneeling with hands lifted high as he's dedicating this people and this temple to the Lord. He himself is an offering right here, kneeling on this platform, hands spread out toward heaven. He says, oh, Lord, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Who kept your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You fulfilled it this day. You have follow through, God. You don't just say things and not do them, but you do what you say you're going to do. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you've walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David. Last week, we started with this request that he's about to start right here. We camped out last week on this next paragraph, and it was rich. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, yet have regard to the prayer of of your servant and to his plea. 
Oh, Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you. Lord, my God, pray that you, I pray that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place that you have promised to set your name, and that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. This was the first of seven requests that we're going to consider. Really, there is a request in front of that where he's asking that David's offspring would continue to be on the throne, which they are to this day. He is to this day, seated at the right hand of the Father. But the first quest, request that we considered was last week, that paragraph I just read, verses 18 through 22. And in chapter 7, he answers it specifically. He says, you know what? If my people are called to, by my name, and if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, not only will my eyes be on them, but I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer that's made in this place. For now I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes, we could say, and also his ears, and my heart will be there for all time. Solomon asks for his eyes, and God says, you know what? You can have my eyes, you can have my ears, and you can have my heart, and you know what? You're gonna be to me like a child and I'm going to be to you like a father. We considered last week that God has answered this prayer in spades for the church. Starting in Matthew, this, this saturation of our New Testaments with references to God as Father show us that God has followed through on this request. Solomon was asking that their prayers would be heard in that temple, and it was a shadow of the substance that we swim in right now where we have access to our Father anytime. There's no big iron door that we have to open. There's no big heavy appointment book with big pages that we have to flip open. We have access anytime we want it to our Heavenly Father. And He hears us. We have His eyes. We have His ear. We have His heart. Man, that's what we considered last week, and that was good medicine, seeing God as a good father. This week, we consider the next request. The next couple of verses, beginning in verse 22. <clears throat> if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. This was a surprise couple of verses, I need to tell you. This, I want to just prepare you right now that how relevant this is, it's going to be in your hands in a few minutes. This next couple of verses is so relevant, in fact, it will be in your physical hands here in these next few minutes. It's a little taste, pun intended, of what's in store. Solomon asks God that when two jokers show up in the temple, they might be neighbors, they might be husband and wife, they might be any two people that show up in the temple, when they stand before God, that they can do something called an oath. And when they swear that oath before God, that God would do three verbs, hear, act, and judge. And that when he hears, and when he acts, and when he judges, that it would play out one of two ways. When two people stand before the altar that in some way have wronged each other, where there's no evidence, this is context here, where there's no evidence that weighs in that explains who's guilty and who's not, two people stand before the altar, they can swear an oath that God would do three things, hear, act, and judge, and they would play out one of two ways, either repaying the guilty with conviction or rewarding or vindicating the righteous. That's what Solomon is asking for here. And it's going to make complete sense here in a few minutes. We have a couple of satellites I want you to go to. 
Exodus chapter 22 is the first, and Numbers chapter 5 is the second. So if you want to have your finger in one spot or a bookmark in one spot, go ahead and turn to Numbers, excuse me, Exodus chapter 22 first. In order to understand what Solomon is asking for here, in order to understand what relevance this has for us as the church, we have to understand oaths. It's not a real common thing for us now unless you're being sworn into some sort of official position. We don't really understand oaths, so we're going to do a little research, a little study on oaths. This first passage, Exodus chapter 22, is going to be the most primitive version of what we're talking about this morning. Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it's stolen from the man's house. Hey, let's say your bank is going out of business or something, or you got some reason where you need to give your neighbor your money, and you're asking them to hold on to it. And then it's stolen from that man's house. If the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief, though, is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God. Here, stand before the altar to show whether or not he's put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox or you know, money or an ox or a donkey or a sheep or a cloak or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is the lost thing, the case of both parties shall come before God, i.e. the altar. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, instead of money, in this case it's a critter, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he's put his hand to his neighbor's property. This is the most primitive form of what we're going to look at this morning. And this is pretty cool because I bet you do this, parents. I bet you do what's actually taking place right here. I realized I did it with Daniel this week. I, Daniel, I'm not going to put you on the spot. It's not a bad story about you or anything. I usually ask for permission if I'm going to tell a bad story. It's not a bad story. It's just a story. There's one point in this week where Daniel was sitting at the table and he's eating lunch and I'm asking him, Daniel, I want you to look me in the eyes right now and tell me if you've done the reading you're supposed to do today. And Daniel, sort of like our little home version of this standing before the altar is looking before his little home version of his sovereign and saying, yes, Father, I have done my reading, or not. There's something about when you get down on your knees at eye level and you look your kids in the eye and say, okay, tell me the truth. Did you or did you not brush your teeth? (laughs) Did you or did you not bathe tonight? Did you or did you not? There's a reckoning that takes place. That's the most primitive form of what we're talking about right here, where two people are standing before the altar, eye contact with each other, with the priest, and with God. And there's a reckoning moment. Did you or did you not sell that donkey? (laughs) Did you or did you not take that money? There's a reckoning moment. And that's what this is right here, this Exodus version. Now let's turn to our next version, Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5 is a little more developed. This one is really interesting. And I'm telling you, this is where things are going to come to life for you here in a little bit. Numbers chapter 5, oaths. Beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read a section here all the way to verse 28. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, here's another scenario where in this case it's not necessarily neighbors, it's a husband and a wife. But the truth is not clear. The eyes of her husband or it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she's undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there's no witness against her, 
since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife who's defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, she may not have. The spirit of jealousy comes over this husband. Then this husband shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah, barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, put no frankincense on it, for it's the grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. It's, it's a lot like this other passage in Exodus, but it's a little more detail here. They've been about this, this tabernacle business for a while by this point, so things can be a little bit more refined here. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and shall take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. This is crazy. It sounds like Salem witch trial stuff to me. I'm confessing to you, and I'm going to address that again in a minute. Salem witch trial stuff. You may be familiar with that. Take this stuff that's on the take this dust off the floor, put it in the holy water, and the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind her hair and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy, and in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath. Let's develop it. Saying, here's the oath, wife. If no man has lain with you, and if you've not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings a curse. But if you've gone astray, though you're under your husband's authority, if you've defiled yourself, if some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels, whoa, and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, amen and amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he's made her drink the water, then... If she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away. And the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free. And not only will she be free, she's going to have some babies. She'll be able to conceive. Now, this is a more developed version of what we saw in Exodus. And this I shared already. It had a little hint of a Salem witch trial to me. And in fact, yesterday I went and studied Salem witch trials and I saw these crazy tests they put these women to. One was let's put a rock, tie a rock to your foot and throw you in the water. And if you sink and drown, then you weren't a witch. <laughs> like, oh man, I guess she wasn't one. If she can float, though, she's a witch. Weird stuff. That really, in some ways, is a Nadab and Abihu, Abihu version, if you know who they are, who offered strange fire, did their own little version of a test of what this God-honoring, God-offered test is. Take this dust off the floor of the tabernacle, put it in this holy water, make this woman, the accused, drink it, and I will show you who's guilty and who's not. In fact, if she's guilty, she will have what I think is some version of wasting disease where your muscle mass and your fat, actually your body just uses it up and your abdomen swells. And not only will, you, will all those things happen, but you won't conceive. That's the anti-version there. 
This woman will not conceive, and she'll be a walking visual curse among the people of someone who did wrong God and her husband, or she'll drink the same stuff, and she'll be fine. It won't even make her hurt. It won't even be painful to her. And in fact, not only will she be fine, she will have some babies. Pretty cool picture when you think about it. It may sound a little primitive, but it puts all the responsibility on God to convict the guilty and to vindicate the righteous. Now, both of these examples of oaths inform what Solomon is asking for here. Both of these examples help explain specifically what Solomon is requesting in this static version of this traveling tabernacle. In this static version, when two people show up, they should be able to stand before the altar, make an oath, and that God, you will hear, you will act, and you will judge by repaying the guilty and bringing conviction on them or by vindicating and rewarding the righteous. These two verses, I'm telling you what, they snuck up on me for us as a church. They snuck up on me and gave me so much encouragement. I want to look at these two lenses now that we have from Exodus and Numbers. I want to look through those lenses at what we could and should hope for in 2013 as a church. First of all, the Exodus oath, the Look me in the eyes and shoot straight with me. Tell me the truth oath where two people have wronged each other or one has wronged the other and they have eye contact with each other, eye contact with their priest, eye contact with their God, and it's a moment of truth. What I hope for in in this next year is that, that weekly we would stand before the altar of truth. That weekly we would stand before God while he kneels and looks us square in the eyes. Week after week after week through a message that should serve as a sort of reckoning. Through a weekly reckoning. I hope and pray that God's messages for us this year would do two things. That God's verbs would act, first of all, here he would hear, act, and judge, and the two things would happen, that they would bring conviction to the guilty, first. And secondly, that they would bring encouragement to the righteous. Conviction to the guilty and encouragement to the righteous. As I was working on that specific point, I thought of two passages. One is in the book of Ezekiel. Don't turn there. I just want you to listen because I'm already there. And the other is in the book of Revelation. Listen to these two passages. This passage in Ezekiel was one of my favorite passages in seminary. Because for me, it was a taste of what I wanted ministry to be here at Crosspoint. Listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 3. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll. If you want a visual aid of what he's talking about here, eat this book that I'm giving you. God's speaking to Ezekiel. Eat this book and speak to the house of Israel. Eat it and then speak. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. That's one little glimpse right there. Some of the sermons that you've heard over the course of your lifetime or maybe in the past few years, past few months, where you leave and you think, man, I am so encouraged. That left me feeling so encouraged and affirmed. That was as sweet as honey in my mouth. Now here's the rest of the story. Revelation chapter 10. Take and eat it, speaking of the scroll. And it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And sure enough, it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many things and nations and languages and kings. This is an older or a later version of exactly what's taking place in Ezekiel in the book of Revelation. 
And here he's saying, you take it, and it's going to taste good. But in this case, it's going to make your stomach bitter. And I thought, man, those are great visual aids of what our weekly messages will do if they're done rightly. If we have a true diet of the full counsel, there will be some messages that are sweet and some messages that are just hard to stomach. Some messages are going to leave you convicted. Some messages are going to leave you broken. And you know what? If you come and go from church week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year, and you never have Sundays where you're broken and convicted, I would wonder if the counsel, full counsel, is truly preached. We're supposed to hear it both. We're supposed to get it both, both of them. And you know what? It may take place in the same sermon. In one sermon, one person might be left with a sweet taste in his mouth and another person sitting right next to him might be left with a bitter taste depending on where they are relative to God. Some might be affirmed and some might be convicted. And one person might be convicted in one part of a sermon and affirmed in another part of a sermon. But if we're taking in the full counsel and the full diet... We should all have tastes of both flavors, sweet and sour. Sweet and sour. I'm praying for that this year, praying that we have a taste of both. I'm praying, too, that as we expose truth week in, week out as a church, as we hear it, as we engage it week in, week out, that our journey in truth with God and with others would bring private sin to the open. I'm not talking about necessarily at a corporate level where all the world knows about your every little secret sin. But the week in, week out, as you have that eye contact with God and with the priest and with each other, that those things that you hold privately, that it would be a moment of truth for you week in, week out. And that you would come under conviction of things, those things that you're under conviction of, that you would take what Brad and I and Scott talked about recently, take the inconspicuous, Brad brought this up last week, to be conspicuous, the unseen into the light, the hidden out in the open where you can find brothers and sisters or maybe a spouse or a family member within this church body to walk with you in dealing with that so you don't have to live enslaved to it. I pray that week in, week out, that there are those occasions where the hidden is brought to light. I want to share with you as I'm turning to a passage in Matthew 7. I want to share with you that my observation in the past almost 10 years of doing this is that this um, convicting the guilty thing has a couple different effects on people. In some people, these messages that bring conviction, that Bring, convilt, can, uh, can bring guilt to someone that they deal with it through repentance. And then other people on other occasions, and it could be the same person on another occasion, says, you know what, I can't hear this anymore. And you don't see them on Sundays anymore. Or you don't see them for a period of time where they're going their own way and they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Because the truth hurts. It brings conviction. And it brings guilt. And you can either respond to that with repentance or you can respond to it by running from it and sticking your fingers in your ears and going, blocka, 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 I'm not going to hear it. I want to hear something that will tickle my ears. I want to hear something that's going to tell me how great I am. I want to hear something that's going to affirm my efforts, not be honest, an honest reckoning with me if I'm guilty. I read a passage in Matthew 7 that encouraged me in this. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. This is a familiar passage that leads to destruction. That's the easy way, and it's wide. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow, and the way is, this is the word that stuck out to me, hard that leads to life. The way is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I read that word hard and I thought that just makes so much sense as we're dealing with truth week in, week out, and we're having some of those Sundays where we come under severe conviction personally. You got to know that I do too. And realizing, man, responding in repentance and responding and continuing to walk with God's people and not retreating, it's hard. It's hard. 
It's a whole lot easier to just get your ears tickled. It's a whole lot easier to be encouraged when you've done something good than really be convicted about guilt and shame. Man, I'm telling you, there's treasure in store when you continue on this narrow, hard work. There's blessing in store. Will we be a people that continue in the work? Will you be a family that continues in this hard, narrow work? Will you be a people that don't shirk the truth or avoid truth or dance around it, but instead will hear it, will speak the truth in love, knowing that whatever sin is exposed, whatever guilt or shame or conviction, that in Christ we aren't enslaved to it. The beauty when you stick it out and when you go the distance, when you are under conviction and you have heard that for maybe a few weeks in a row, is that we have a throne of grace that we can approach where we find mercy and grace in time of need. Man, may we be a church that bears that message, that bears those truth messages that are hard to hear sometimes, but that leave you encouraged. But yes, there's the throne of grace. And I'm running to it because I need it. And I'll find forgiveness there. Not only the sweet messages, but the sour realities. Sweet and sour. Sweet and sour. The second lens that I wanted to look through is through our numbers lens. The numbers picture of oaths. The more developed version, the jealousy right. You may not have thought about that as that, but that's what's taking place there. Where a husband is thinking, he has a spirit of jealousy. He's thinking, my wife has cheated on me. And they go through this process. That thing is called a jealousy rite. Now, here's where things are going to get real personal. And I mean real specific. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to share a larger section of Scripture here. But man, it's so important. Mm. And this is going to prepare us for our Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. I'm just curious at this point, and I'm not going to take a poll, but I'm curious, and maybe you can email me or text me during the week if anybody expected me to go to 1 Corinthians 11, if anybody saw this coming. Because watch what unfolds here in these next couple minutes. Beginning in verse 17. In the following instructions, Paul's writing to a church in Corinth, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. This is sort of a scolding here. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Okay, first mark against them. There's divisions, at least in the, tech, the section. Of, there's lots of marks against the Corinthian church, but we're just going to deal with a few of them here in this text. There are divisions among you. You got the haves and the have-nots. Watch how it unfolds. You got haves and have-nots, and they don't share in between. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's how God can even take a heartbreaking thing and a difficult thing and do a God-glorifying thing through it, where even in, you know, through the factions that are among you, I'm going to show you who's legit and who's not, legitimate and who's not. Every time I say legit, my kids make fun of me. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, that's the have-nots. Another gets drunk, that's the haves. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that... The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's where things get really personal. 
Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Can we insert some imagery there? That's why many of you, your thighs wasting away and your abdomen swelling. Let's import the passage that we've learned, that we've engaged, and know that that's ours to grab now that we see us as the house. That explains why your thighs wasting away and your abdomen swelling. But if we judged ourselves truly, would we not be judged? But when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Where I'm going with this connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is I want you to see that this thing that we do weekly is an oath. This thing we do weekly is a fidelity oath. Make no mistake, God has established all through our Bibles his, this imagery of him as our husband, as him as the groom to his people. You know it as Christ as the groom to the bride, the church. This is a jealousy right, what we're taking week in, week out. We know that God is a jealous God. I looked at these passages in, in Deuteronomy. Just listen to these. Don't turn there. Just listen. Three different references in Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or it's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here, jealous husband. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Man. You shall not go after other gods, the God of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Can you consider that this weekly meal that we take each week is not only an oath, but it is a jealousy rite? Can you consider... For a moment, that just as Paul told the Corinthian church, if you eat it wrongly and you're cheating on your husband, it's going to make you sick. That's what Paul told the church. That's what I'm telling this church. If you eat it wrongly, it's going to be bitter. It's going to be sickly. You're going to be miserable. The Lord's Supper is a weekly jealousy rite. It is a weekly oath of fidelity. As we take the supper each week, we are saying, God, I am yours and you are mine. You are my portion. We may have some leftovers this week. Given that, I would rather us have leftovers this week and take it rightly. Where we have a week in front of us to true some things up. To where we have enough next, next week, to where everybody gets some. Maybe fewer of you are going to take this this week, knowing that this is an oath. It's a jealousy right. It is a Drink of commitment. God, I will be true to you because you are mine and I am yours. Solomon's request about that house 
is that when people show up and make an oath, that God hears, He acts, and that He judges, and He convicts the guilty, and vindicates the righteous. My hope and prayer is that He does that with us. Through the preaching of the Word, and through the weekly meal slash jealousy rite slash oath. Let's pray. God, a couple things take place in my heart as I consider what we've engaged in these last few minutes. I swallow hard before I think of taking and eating and drinking. I swallow hard and I examine myself and I consider myself and I examine my heart and I ask if I, myself if I've propped up any other gods. I ask myself if I look to my wife to make me happy more than I look to you. I ask myself if I look to food to help me be content more than I look to you and your spiritual meal of the word. I ask myself if I'm fueled more by feedback from people and affirmation and encouragement than just deep awe and satisfaction with you. Lord, I ask myself if I have any other gods before you. And I examine myself, Lord, and I pray that if, if I do, you will show that to me. I ask that for this people too, that whatever gods we may have before us that are before you, whatever, whatever idols we may have propped up, seemingly innocent, seemingly insignificant, anything we may look to that we need more than you, I pray that we can sacrifice that idol right now and that we can take and eat rightly. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for this pulpit right here. I pray that this pulpit will be a place where we get both sweet and sour. I pray that this pulpit will be a place that does not tickle ears, but that speaks and exposes the truth and love and the full counsel cover to cover. And I pray that those chairs out there will be filled with people that are willing to do the hard work of walking in the narrow way, hearing it, repenting when convicted, and celebrating when affirmed. God, I pray that we can have that healthy mix of both. I'm thankful that as Solomon prayed for that in that house, that you've given us that in spades in this house. And I pray that we will be faithful and continue to walk in it in 2013. God, we love you. Thankful so much for an opportunity to eat with you right now and to take this jealousy right. Examine us as we examine ourselves as we go about it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Told you it was going to be in your hands today. May our weekly gatherings and journey together bring out the guilt in us with strong conviction. We're all going to have those Sundays. We're all going to have those truths. Don't run from them. May we do the work of walking in it and the hard work of repentance and staying in the way is what they called it. The way. Are you in the way? The convicted must hear and know too that when that conviction comes, not if it comes, but when it comes, that we can find mercy and forgiveness where there's true repentance. That we have a throne that is approachable, the throne of grace, to receive mercy in time of need. Man, may our weekly gatherings be an encouragement too for those who are enjoying you and walking in your ways. May you be affirmed. Husbands who are loving your wives well, be affirmed, be encouraged. Wives who are enjoying your husbands, making much of a knucklehead. That's what it is, wives. Because the church makes much of Christ as an act of worship, making much of a guy that really is kind of hard often to make much of. Man, when you do that, be affirmed. Kids, when you're honoring your parents 
young people, youth, when you're doing the anti-world thing and actually looking to your parents as wise sources of insight, looking to them for counsel, obeying them, walking in the ways that they put in front of you. Be encouraged. May we be that people. Man, may we be that people that on occasion hear, well done, good and faithful servant, knowing that we hear both things, the conviction and the affirmation from a loving Father. Hear it from a loving and good Father. May we be that people. Sometimes sweet, sometimes bitter, always true. As a jealousy right and an oath of fidelity, take and eat. And take and drink heartily. God, what a sweet, sweet time. We love you so much. We are so amazed at your grace and your mercy to have a throne that's approachable or to, to give us approachability with a throne and to give us eyes to see what got us there. We enjoy that it has not been nor will it ever be due to any efforts on our part, but is because of the finished work of Christ alone. We enjoy him together this morning. We're thankful that we find ample grace and ample mercy at your feet in Christ. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week.